read, um, well, pretty much the whole chapter, not quite, but pretty much the whole chapter, because I want you to get the context of the things that are being said. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He's talking about when Israel came out of Egypt, and God caused them to pass over the Red Sea on dry land. And then when Pharaoh's armies chased after them, they were drowned in the sea. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed. And fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. And were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured. And they were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for our. For in samples. This word in samples is the same word example that we saw earlier. And they are written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now when the Bible says that the things of the Old Testament are our examples. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, the Corinthian is not a Jewish church. The churches in Corinth are Gentile churches. So when Paul writes by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost about the Old Testament being examples to us, then he has to, and the time that he was there in Corinth founding and starting the church, and for whatever period of time he stayed there, I think the, the least he was at any one place was three months and the most he was in any one place was Ephesus when he was there for three and a half years. So obviously, Paul expects them to know what he's talking about, which means he had to teach a lot of Jewish history when he started the churches. He had to instruct them into the history of the Jews for them to understand what the examples were for. Now, won't you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11, please? This is going to speak to us about some of those examples. Verse 1. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep his charge and his statutes, and his judgments and his command, commandments always. And you know this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, and his miracles and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all of his land, and what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto the horses, and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them until this day. And what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came unto this place. 
and what he did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, how that the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land, whether you go to possess it, and that you may prolong your days in the land, which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land, whether thou goest to possess it, is not as the land of Egypt from which you came out, where thou sowest thy seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land, whether you go to possess it, it is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in the fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you. And he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth thee, Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall teach them your children speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way when thou liest down and when thou risest up and they shall write them upon the doorpost of thine house and upon thy gates that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven on the earth. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 11, really pretty much the whole book of Deuteronomy is Paul, is, um, what's his name, Moses. When Moses is giving his farewell address to the people. Now, the Bible tells us that Moses wasn't able to go into the promised land because he messed up one of the examples that God gave us or was trying to give to us. When they came out of Egypt, when Israel came out of Egypt, one of the first places they came to was void of water. Now there's several million people, anywhere from two to seven million, depending on whose estimates you want to accept, plus livestock, in great measure. So the water that would be necessary to take care of these people would have to be huge. We're not talking about everybody having a sip of water. We're talking about a need for millions of people to be hydrated. And Moses, at the instruction of the Lord, went to a certain rock in front of all the congregation of Israel and struck the rock with his with his staff. And that was a type of Jesus being smitten for our sakes. It was a type of the punishment that he took upon himself. 
smitten of God and afflicted, as Isaiah 53 says. And so water came out in great abundance from a rock. And as a result, the people had plenty. But then they came to another place where there was no water. And the people were murmuring against God and against Moses, and Moses got ticked off. And so whereas God told him to go to the rock and speak to it, Moses struck it again. And so because he messed up God's type, God's example for us, he was prohibited from going into the promised land. Now here they are at the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And Moses begins to, as I said, it was his farewell address. But his farewell address was good news and bad news. Good news if they obeyed, bad news if they disobeyed. And so as Moses is telling them, preparing them, preparing the children of Israel to go into the promised land, Joshua is taken over from him, and he leads them into the promised land. As Moses is delivering his farewell address, everything is about keeping the word of God. And he tells them the promises or the the fulfillment of those promises. Did you notice in, in chapter 11 where he read, did you notice how many times it talks about the land being possessed? Go in and possess the land, the land that you go in to possess it and so forth. Now, folks, if crossing the Red Sea on dry land was a type of salvation, Egypt is the type of the world. And so when they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land, that was a type of entering into salvation, entering into God's deliverance. So if crossing the Red Sea is the example or the type that God set up to refer to salvation, being born again, coming into the family of God, then what's the promised land? A lot of times the church has said that the promised land is a type of heaven. But folks, there aren't any giants in heaven. There aren't any enemies to fight. There aren't any battles to win. So the promised land can't be a type of heaven. Well, if it's not a type of heaven, what is it a type of? It's a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost and all the wonderful things that belong to us as children of God. Now remember, we read, and this is not the only place that it tells us this, but we read where Moses instructed the people on behalf of God and said, as you go in to possess the land, everywhere the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. Everywhere you put your foot shall be yours. In other words, it was the physical presence of Israel on and in the promised land that identified what they would have of God's promise. Now, God wanted them to take the whole promised land. And they did with one exception. There was one group of people that they couldn't overcome. They weren't walking in obedience with God, so this people stayed in the promised land side by side with Israel and became a thorn in their side in so many ways. But God intended for them to take the whole of the promised land. They were to do that by physically putting their foot on the territory that they intended to possess. Now, the Bible tells us 
That's a type as well. The Bible tells us in several places in the New Testament that we walk by faith and not by sight. So the fulfillment of the type in the Old Testament where everywhere you put the sole of your feet or everywhere the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. For us, it's everywhere that we walk by faith shall be ours. And that's, what, that's the type or that's the example that Moses messed up. See, it was supposed to be the water came from the rock the first time because that which represented Jesus was smitten or stricken. But then from there on, the water would come from the rock by speaking words. And you know as well as I do that Jesus defined faith as believing your heart and saying with your mouth. Now, however much of this promised land you take hold of is up to you. God wants you to take the whole thing. Jesus paid the price for the whole thing. But how much you possess or take possession of is up to you. I think so much of the church, too much of the church, is sitting back just waiting for God's will to be accomplished in their lives, thinking that they don't have to do anything other than find out what God's will is. And as a result, many people don't recognize that God is consistent and that he never changes and that he's no, no respecter of persons, which means what's available for one person has to be available for all. It means if divine healing is available for one, then it has to be made available for all. It means if prosperity and abundance is available for one, then it has to be available for all. God's not picking winners and losers. He's not taking sides. He provided for everything that needs, would need to be accounted for in our lives. He's already done it. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 6. <clears throat> Paul's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And he says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, and this word if literally means since. For since when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now let's talk about that for a minute. This word reconciled means a mutual exchange. It means there was a complete exchange of one thing for another thing. We're going to find out that one thing that was exchanged or taken on by Jesus for us was sin and death. The sin and death that belongs to mankind because of Adam's sin. Well, if it's a mutual exchange, that means something else has to be offered in its place or made available in its place. The Bible says that Jesus reconciled us to God. In other words, he took our sin upon him. He was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, everything about the redemptive plan of God is about righteousness. Because without righteousness, man cannot stand in God's presence. It's impossible. 
the law of sin and death, no matter how good a life somebody might live, the law of sin and death demands that a life be paid, that blood be shed as an offering for that sin. So everything is about righteousness. And I think that's probably the biggest reason why righteousness is one of, if not the most common area that the devil attacks us and tries to hinder us. How many times have we heard people say, well, I'm just so unworthy? Well, not if you're born again. Now, don't get me wrong. You may be unworthy in yourself. But the Bible says our righteousness is of God. For example, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, it says, No weapon formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage or the inheritance that we have as children of God. And then it concludes, And their righteousness is of me, saith God. So here in the Old Testament, God is, is identifying through Isaiah the prophet that it's because we've been made righteous that we can live free from any and every weapon that's formed against us. Now, folks, a lot of the things that come against us in life are claimed by believers, by Christians, children of God, as being God's doing. Some people will say that God uses sickness and disease to teach us. Well, what about no weapon formed against us shall prosper? Why would God use something that he doesn't have, by the way? If God was going to make somebody sick, where would he get the sickness? He doesn't have any. There's certainly none in heaven. Everybody agrees that heaven is a place that's void of anything that could hurt and harm mankind. And the Bible tells us, we saw very clearly, and we could prove it from several other instances as well, but we saw clearly that God's intent and God's plan through obeying his word by walking by faith, that he wants us to live a life that's like days of heaven on the earth. Well, what are days in heaven like? The Bible says that heaven's a place of joy. The Bible tells us that heaven is a place of purity. It's a place of victory. There's no blue Mondays in heaven. There's no looking forward to the weekend. Heaven is fully furnished with everything that we'll ever need. Well, that's the way God wants it to be here on the earth. And if you think about it from the standpoint of creation, God created everything in six days and on the seventh day he rested. The Bible says that when God had created everything that he made in six days, it goes further to say that he, made, he put an end to all that he created. In other words, everything that God ever created on the earth was created in those six days. He could not and did not come back afterwards and tweak something or bring something else that hadn't been there before. God made an end of his creative works at the end of the, set, uh, end of the sixth day, culminating with man's creation. And God looked at it and said that it was very good. 
what does that mean? Well, when we're talking about God, it has to mean that it was perfect. And there was nothing that could hurt man. There was no sickness and disease. There was no poverty or lack. There was no unrighteousness, no sin. There was nothing that could hurt and harm man. Well, folks, the Bible says God never changes. We can see clearly from that that God's intent was for man to live in paradise. The earth, the whole earth was a paradise before sin came in on the scene. Now, why was it a paradise? Because God made it to be. Why did God make the earth to be paradise? Because that was his intent. That was his will. And since he never changes, if it was his original will, it has to be his will today. God didn't change because man sinned. God's plan for the earth didn't change because of man's sin. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5. Let's read verse 10 again. For since when we were enemies, we were reconciled. There's that mutual exchange. Reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled. In other words, being born again. Being a child of God. Much more being reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. This word saved is the word sozo. It's an all-inclusive term that's used throughout the New Testament for salvation. It means to rescue. It means to deliver. It means to make safe. It means to make sound. It means to heal. All of that is part of God's package of redemption or salvation. And not only are we reconciled into his family by the blood of Jesus, but Paul goes another step. He says, since we have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus, in other words, since the blood of Jesus was offered as a one-time sacrifice, a worthy sacrifice for all of man's sins, since we were made the righteousness of God through the new birth, everybody doesn't take advantage of it, but it belongs to everybody. Then Paul goes another step by the direction of the Holy Ghost and says, if the blood of Jesus was able to reconcile us back unto righteousness, then much more. Get that phrase, much more. Paul uses the much more phrase several times in the letters that he writes to the churches. Jesus used much more several times when he was talking about the character and the nature of God. Much more simply means that one thing being compared to another, one, the first thing being so much greater than the other, they really shouldn't be compared. So when Paul says much more, he's saying simply this. Since we were reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, then even greater truth, greater foundation, greater surety, shall we be reconciled or saved by his life. In other words, the reconciliation was not just for sin. The reconciliation was for sickness and disease and poverty. The redemptive plan of God is to overcome, was intended for and accomplished the overcoming of every evil thing that could come against us in this life. Much more. Since we were reconciled by the blood of Jesus unto righteousness, much more shall we be saved, delivered, rescued, made safe, made sound, made whole, healed. Much more shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by whom we now have received the atonement. This is the only place where the word atonement is used in the New Testament. And it doesn't mean atonement. It's the root word for reconciled. It means an exchange. Now the difference between reconciled and this word atonement is that reconciled means a mutual exchange between two parties. One exchanged one condition of sin and death, the other righteousness. So we have received the atonement, the, the exchange. Verse 12, wherefore, as by one man, man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, everything that's related to death, Sickness, disease, lack, everything that's related to death, every circumstance, every characteristic of death, spiritual death, entered in through Adam's sin. That's why we see sickness and disease in the world and can understand why, how it could be here because God sure didn't make it. That's why we see tragedies, why we see lack in the world around us. Because the whole world lies in darkness. The whole world has been affected by spiritual death. Through one man and that was Adam. Wherefore as by one man sin entered the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned. He's talking about spiritual death. You remember when God told Adam. Not to eat of the forbidden fruit. He said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he couldn't have been talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years. Well, what other death is there? The only other death that the Bible speaks of is spiritual death, which is separation from God. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed God, their eyes were opened. They saw they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid from God. Death passed upon all men. Because we were in Adam when Adam sinned, it passed upon mankind, including you and me. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That means that Adam is a type of Jesus. That means Adam is a type of the Messiah. Adam's one sin brought the law of sin and death into the world. Jesus' action and sacrifice on the cross restored us to righteousness. But not as the offense, so is the free gift. For if through the offense, one, offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, there's that much more again. He's saying this is a bad comparison, but I don't have anything else to use. Much more through the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. Still talking about Adam. The judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. In other words, it's saying Jesus paid the price for two types of sin. Isaiah 53, 5 says it this way. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. Now, what's the difference between transgressions and iniquities? 
you look them up in the dictionary or look them up in uh, uh, a Greek concordance. I'm sorry, a Hebrew concordance. There's very little difference between the two words. So why does the Bible specifically identify two different types of sin? Because the first sin was Adam's sin. Jesus redeems us from Adam's sin and brings us into righteousness. But the second sin is your personal sins. See, it'd be real easy for us to sit back and say, well, Adam messed things up. I don't know what he was thinking. But that shouldn't apply to me because I didn't commit that sin. But the reality is, given the opportunity, we would have. And so here where it's talking about being reconciled unto God, it's talking about Jesus paying the price for offenses. He paid the price not only for the, the original sin, which brought sin and death into the world, but he's also talking about your individual sins. Think about that, folks. Everything that we ever have done, everything that we've ever contemplated doing, everything that we will ever do that's contrary to the will of God was paid for by the blood of Jesus. It was a total redemption. It was a total reconciliation. Verse 17. For if, here's this word since again, since by one man's offense, Adam's sin, death reigned by one. Much more. Here's that much more again. It's a poor comparison, but there's no other comparison to, to be made. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice the place of righteousness that brings us into a place of authority or the condition of authority that enables us to use, our, to use that authority and to reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, there's two ways to know this. One is experientially. That's a problem because we have trouble with sin even after we're born again. And so our experience is that the Bible says we've been made righteous, but we know that from our lifestyles, we know through the things that we do, the sins we commit, we know that that doesn't seem to be true or we question how could it be true because of our own life. But the other way to look at it is God's way. God made his righteousness contingent on one and only one thing. And that one thing's not you. Righteousness is contingent on one and only one thing. And that one thing is the shed blood of Jesus. So what the Bible is telling us is that because Jesus paid the price, you have been made righteous whether you ever live up to it or not. Now let's back up for a minute and talk about something. Children of Israel came through the Red Sea on dry land. That's a type of salvation. They entered into the family of God, so to speak, or that which represents the family of God to us. 
but they were in the wilderness. They were still in a hard place. It took two and a half years or so for this large group of people to depart from Egypt and then get to where the promised land was. Now, we all know what happened when they came to the promised land the first time. Numbers chapter 13 and 14 tell us very specifically, and that's an example for us too, how that through unbelief they refused to accept that God was on their side and would deliver the, the people that were living in the promised land unto them. They said, we can't do it. They said, we can't take the promised land because of the people that live there. And because of their unbelief, they wound up having to wander in the wilderness for 40 more years. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 11 that we read and throughout the book of Deuteronomy, the children of Israel, after those 40 years, have come back to the same place they were. Folks, there's, there's a spiritual truth that you need to understand. And that is, when a test comes, if you don't handle it well according to the Word of God, if you don't walk by faith and conquer it, you'll have that test again. You don't get a pass on the test. So you might as well learn what the Word says and identify how to walk by faith to take hold of whatever it is the devil's trying to keep you from so that you can pass it once and for all. Israel has come back around to the place where they failed the first test 40 years earlier. Now, as I said, we know what happened. Through unbelief, they refused to go in and possess the land even though God was on their side. And even in the wilderness, there were battles that they, were, that they fought. There were enemies that came out against them. And they found that God would, was faithful to take care of them even in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They could have learned it in the promised land. In the wilderness, God helped them just to stay alive. But they could have used the same help from God to take hold of the promised land. Moses is now talking to the generation that will take the promised land. Their fathers, everybody from the age of 20 and up, had died in the wilderness. And so the next generation comes around. And they passed the test. They went in and took hold of the promised land. Now, since coming out of Egypt is a type of salvation, they come to the promised land. Thank God they took it this time, but they didn't have to. It wasn't like God had ordained it, and no matter what they chose, they were going in. If that was the way that God worked, it was, would have been the way that he worked 40 years before. Israel, the second generation of Israel, could have refused to go to the promised land too. And that's exactly what a lot of people do in this present day. They come into salvation. They see the goodness of God concerning the forgiveness of sins. They give their heart to the Lord, confess Jesus as their Lord, and never partake of anything else that God has for them. They spend their Christian lives in the wilderness, wandering continually Moses spoke in some verses we read just a bit ago about the promised land being a, a different kind of land than Egypt was it was a land that God cares for it was a land that God 
sent rain upon so that they didn't have to walk those treadmill contraptions like, in, uh, like they did when they were in Egypt for irrigation. It's a land that depends on God. If it depends on rain, God's the rain maker. And so it depended on sustenance from God, not their own work. I lived a lot of my life saved but in the wilderness. And it was an extremely disheartening thing. Even as a teenager, I wanted to do the right thing. I knew what doing the right thing was. The church was good about telling us what was right and wrong. The church was good at telling us what we should do to do good or to do right. But they never told us what the power was that was available to us to do the right things. And so it was, it was a matter of constant condemnation. Every service in the Baptist church, Southern Baptist church I grew up in, every service... The altars were full of people at the end of the service uh, repenting and rededicating their lives to the Lord. Folks, if you, can read, if you can wear out your rededicator, we did it. And that even brought condemnation too. Because you're sitting there listening to, to preaching about doing the right thing. If your heart is right toward God, you want to do the right thing but you're powerless to do it. And so you wind up getting to the point, and certainly the devil helps you push you this way, you get to the point where you start kicking yourself because of your inability to do the things that you want to do. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I have no idea why we didn't read Romans 7 because that's the very struggle that Paul talks about. It's the very struggle that he talks about. He talked himself about the period of time. We don't know when exactly it was. But he talked about the period of time that he saw two forces working in his body or in his life. One, he said, was from his heart, from his spirit. He wanted to do the right thing. But he was powerless in his flesh to keep from doing the wrong thing. The things that he saw that he shouldn't do were the things that his body led him into doing. The things that he saw that he should not do. The devil had him covered both ways. But then he found something out. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He ends chapter 7 by saying, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? The body that's controlled and influenced by spiritual death. He answers and says, I thank God Jesus Christ is the deliverer. And because Jesus is the deliverer, read verse 1 again. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, you notice I left the last phrase off. This is one of those mysteries about the, the King James Bible. The translators took a phrase that was part of verse 4 and pulled it up into verse 1. 
Now, why did they do that? King James reads, There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The translators are focused on works. The translators are focused on a relationship with God that's free of condemnation through and only through works. And so they had to justify. Translation is good for two things, or a good translation is created by two things. All translations depend on these two things. The first is the knowledge of the language. King James translators were really good on that. But the second is the knowledge of the character and the nature of God. Because see, if translators, and we see a lot of times this is the case, if translators thought that God was the one making people sick or that God used sickness, then they translated, and they did, many places in the Old Testament, that God was the causative action rather than the permitter that the language provides for in Hebrew. There are certain places where the, the understanding of the translators, their understanding of God, is so blatant and so egregious, and it contributes to a great degree and perpetuates the wrong thinking that holds people in bondage. This is a good example of that. If the Bible is saying there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, if they're walking in the spirit instead of the flesh, then how do you escape condemnation in, in any way whatsoever? That's the same thing Paul just said in chapter 7. He said, I want to do right from the inside. I've identified that my spirit is right before God. But my flesh goes a completely different way. He talks about the wretchedness of that condition. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He comes to understand that the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus provided for a total righteousness, whether we walk right or not. Now, I know some people will take this and misunderstand it or run off and do the wrong thing. I know some people will hear this and say, then it doesn't matter how I live. God has made me righteous. Well, you're going to have to be responsible for answering the intent of your heart to God. But frankly, that's none of my business. The only way to overcome the idea that man is unworthy is to say it exactly the way the Bible says it, in that redemption was a complete and total work. If you and I can add to our redemption by living right, then it's not completely dependent on the blood of Jesus. And that's where the devil tries to keep us bound. That's where the devil tries to make us think that what you do, what I do, the way we live our lives is contingent on whether or not we will experience righteousness in its true form. But folks, righteousness in its true form is the new birth. It is the new birth. One of the greatest strides I made in spiritual growth and development was in the midst of having done something really wrong. But instead of doing the thing that I always had done before, and that was kick myself, feel bad about myself, feel worthless, cry, repent, apologize to God. 
I'd done all those things for many years and they frankly didn't work. So I took a new approach. I went to the Father and I said, Lord, I sure don't feel like it. But your word says I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. I declare my righteousness. I repent of my sin. But I recognize that the sin was not of me. The real man on the inside. And folks, I got to tell you, and I'm not, I'm not trying to persuade you in my experience. Because we all have different experiences. And all experience things in different ways. But there was something that came down upon me. There was a peace. I was in my car. And there was a peace that came down upon me that was unlike anything that I had ever experienced up to that point. And I knew that I knew that I knew that God was pleased with the way that I had handled that. Now again, some people may say, well, if that's the case, we can just go live out any way we want to, not worry about sin. People that really love God, though, that's not what they're after. People that really love God are simply trying to find the power to overcome the flesh. Well, where is that power? It's in Christ Jesus. Where is he? He's inside you. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Well, if we're free from the law of sin and death, there's only one way you can be free, and that's be made righteous. Otherwise, you cannot be free from the law of sin and death. That's why it all depends on Jesus. That's why the good news for the world is Jesus has already come. Jesus has already died. Jesus has already paid the price for our redemption. All we have to do is accept what he's done. And that frees us from the law of sin and death. Now, folks, if the law of sin and death has no power over you and me, now, I'm not saying we won't be attacked. We live in a world where Satan is, has a great influence. The Bible says Satan is the God of this world, but it doesn't mean he's the God of the planet. And it doesn't mean that he's the God of the world system. It means he's God for a period of time. But he knows his time is coming. First evil spirit that Jesus came in contact with, according to the four Gospels, as he was casting the devil out of this person, the evil spirit that had possessed the man said, have you come to torment us before the time? I take great comfort in the fact that first and foremost, on the minds of evil spirits that are at work in this earth, is that their clock is running out. They know it. They hope we don't know it. But they know it. And that's what Satan being the God of this world means. He's the God of this period of time. But even in that period of time, it doesn't have to affect you and me. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made, not will make, has made you free from the law of sin and death. That means everything that could harm somebody. That means everything that could bring tragedy or disaster. All that is part of what Jesus redeemed us from. Now, if we live this way, if we live with the understanding that there is no condemnation to us, whether we do good or do wrong, if we live this way and recognize 
that this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. If we live like that, then we will experience days of heaven on the earth. Remember when Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach them to pray? Part of Jesus' prayer is, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So it hadn't yet come. It has now, but it hadn't when Jesus was here on the earth. He said, Thy kingdom come. Well, what is the kingdom of God? He defines it for us. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So according to Jesus, God wants things to be the same in your life here on the earth as he has made available for you to have in heaven. So days of heaven on earth is a function of knowing who we are in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's crossing over into that promised land to take hold of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to take hold of the healing virtue and power of God, to take hold of the delivering power that Jesus made available to us. All those things that make up that root word for salvation, that sozo, that's an all-inclusive term. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. Now, folks, we're all under attack. We all experience at one time or another difficulty and things that we are believing God to overcome the devil. Characteristics of death. It doesn't mean that we won't have any more battles. Remember, there were giants in the promised land. There was the land that they had to possess. It didn't just fall on them like ripe cherries off a tree. So there are things that we will have to walk by faith in order to take possession of. But again, it points to God's never-changing will. He wants you to have it here on the earth just like it is in heaven. And he made available a way for that to be, which was the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. I want to challenge you to do something, folks. For the next 30 days, I challenge you to look yourself in the mirror in the morning. Do this at least once a day. And say, watch yourself say that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And because you're righteous, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Because you're righteous, you're free from the law of sin and death. If you'll do that in 30 days' time, you'll look back and marvel at what you used to be. Because remember, being a doer of the word is putting it to practice in your life. Being a doer concerning the truth of righteousness would be to confess your righteousness no matter whatever else is going on. And if you stumble, if you slip, trip up, declare your righteousness. Don't declare what a loser you are. Don't declare what a weak Christian you are. Declare your righteousness. That'll change your life, folks. Now, nobody can do it but you.
I can do it for me, but I can't do it for you. But if you will do it for you, it'll change everything about your life. Let's pray. Father, we magnify your name. We worship you. We declare your goodness. We declare your righteousness. Say this after me. By the word of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, I have been made righteous. I'm not going to be righteous when I get to heaven. I am righteous now. That righteousness, that law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set me free from the law of sin and death. My righteousness is of God himself. Therefore, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against me in judgment, I do condemn. Because I receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. I am more than a conqueror in Jesus' name. Because I am made righteous, I reign in life. This earthly life, my earthly life, as a king. Satan, I deliver you notice that I refuse to have anything pertaining to the law of sin and death. I am righteous by the blood of Jesus, and that will never change. Amen. Now, folks, if you meditate on those things after you say them, you won't need a car to get to work. You just fly in. It'll provide a joy to your life that you can't have any other way. When we confess who we are in Christ Jesus, when we say we are what the Bible says, no matter how we feel about it, no matter what it looks like to anybody else, but just simply because of what the Bible says, that's real faith. That's taking possession of the righteousness of God that's yours. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness one more time. We bless you, Holy Father. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your healing power. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for all that Jesus paid for. We declare it's ours. We put the sole of our foot by faith on it through the confession of our mouths. And we thank you, Father, for your goodness that you watch over your word to perform it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, come on back and be with us tonight at 6 o'clock for Healing School if you can. Have a great day.